really the recommendation is try to achieve herd immunity, get up to 70% in the areas that have a low pre-productive rate because the vaccine has a bigger impact there than it does in areas with high reproductive rate. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. In this week's podcast, the uncontrolled outbreak in India and what you can do to help. What the U.S. needs to do to get to a place where people can live with masks off. And so much more. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Okay, Fred and Bill, once again, uh, thank you for spending time with us and bringing us up to date. Um, This past week, India and other countries have been very much in the headlines. Maybe you can give us some global perspective of what is happening with the virus and what's likely to come. I've actually, over the past couple of days, have had um, talks with uh, some people in India, not medical, but people who are actually trying to deal with this, uh, corporate staffs in India. And I was impressed by how concerned that these are. These are you know, an educated group in India with good jobs, and these people are very, very concerned. I, I think that we in in outside of uh, South Asia don't have a really good feel for uh, what it's like there. Now, people in New York City may have some uh, similar experiences from back last spring, but uh, I think with that what we can do, whatever we can do to help the South Asia uh, population right now is good. What There are a couple of things going in their favor, and that is that, number one, they are the largest manufacturers of a vaccine. We, we don't really know what, what China's capability is, but outside of China, um, India is the world's largest manufacturer of vaccine. Um, and so that turning that inward, which is what they've done, um, and then utilizing what is already a good public health system, um, hopefully we'll begin to be able to, to turn the tide on this because the rates have just been incredibly high. Yeah, maybe I can comment on that a little bit. The earlier, about a month, two months ago, when we looked at India, they were the pride of the world in that they had very few cases. And unfortunately, I think they got lulled into a false sense of security. They backed off vaccinating and they allowed very large gatherings. And as a consequence, I think of these large gatherings, there were multiple super spreader events that have led to this uh, very high rate of infection. And the problem is, as we know, is most of the cases, you'll get it out, one person will get it outside in the public, but then it'll be, they'll bring it to the household. And in the household, 50 to 60% of those in the household will contract the virus. And those that are more debilitated will suffer greater consequences. I think at this time, what I would recommend for those in India is even when you're in the household, you should wear a mask. The reason being that you could reduce the inoculum of virus that you uh, receive, and that could reduce the severity because right now, Bill and I were talking, the hospitals are absolutely overwhelmed and you really can't go to the hospital, so you have to manage at home. Uh, If the disease is relatively mild, uh, nasal oxygen at four liters, and combined with dexamethasone would probably keep you from requiring uh, intubation and ventilatory support. So I think that that would be one way, at least for right now, while the hospitals are overwhelmed, of uh, mitigating the issues for the family. 
One of the things that's a little concerning, too, is that they're starting to lose track of, of how many cases they're actually having. Um, if you actually take the data that is being put out, and, and there, it looks like it's around 20, just over the limit of what would be considered a uncontrolled community transmission. Um, right, It's right at 26 cases per 100,000 per day, but that's not the real number. Uh, they're, especially as you get outside of the major cities, uh, they're, they don't have a good, good handle on how impactful this is on their system, other than what they're seeing in the systems not being able to uh, handle it. One way you could get at this actually is the number of deaths, which they should be recording. Multiply by that by 100 and you probably have the number of cases per day. But fortunately, the news um, in much of the rest of the world looking looking better, even though India is a place that we need to be paying attention to, because as we know, one of the things we're trying to do is keep down the number of cases, keep down, if you want to call it the global viral load. So that way we can decrease the, uh, the possibility of developing variants. But outside of South Asia, uh, things are looking pretty good. There are a little bit of concern in Japan, and that's especially of concern with uh, the Olympics coming up. Uh, it's not so much the absolute level in Japan, which is still in a, at a what would be considered a, a very low level um, of, of disease, but the problem is they're seeing this trend upward, and they're very worried about the trend upward and trying to map that out with, okay, where is that going to be uh, come come time for the Olympics, especially after they see what's happened in their semi-regional neighbor of, of India. Um, so they're, they are mobilizing their immunization programs and also some of their uh, masking and social distancing programs. Bill, let me, uh, with Fred, uh, unpack a couple of things in your comments. One, of course, um, India and Japan are uh, significant trade partners and uh, there's a fair amount of travel to and from those countries. Uh, are you guys expecting, you know, basically, a, you know, a travel ban to continue or caution in terms of traveling to and from those countries, uh, number one? And number two, is this just a matter of people who have not been vaccinated and sort of dropping their guards a bit? Um, or are we seeing evidence of variants that are resistant to the vaccines. With regards to India, only 1% of the population, my understanding, has been vaccinated. So I don't think we have to invoke any escape uh, variants. And the problem in India, my understanding also, is that they have not been fully sequencing the virus. Therefore, they are not in a position to even determine whether there are variants at this point. But I think India should be a no-travel zone for now until things quiet down. I, Japan, I'm not so sure. Bill, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Oh, in Japan, the numbers are still low. So I'm, not, it's, I'm more worried in Japan about administratively what's going to happen with them shutting things down. I think Japan is, will get a good handle on this. But it's just the, looking at the calendar and how that's going to affect the Olympics, which is obviously a major international event. Though in India also, one of the things just recently, I believe it was either yesterday or the day before, the U.S. State Department put out uh, one of the most uh, concerning alerts I've ever seen come to the State Department that basically said, it wasn't quite in this these words, but it was basically, if you're an American expat in India, you really should think about getting out while you still can. Because 
they're starting to decrease flights. It may be difficult to leave India uh, before too long because much of the rest of the world is going to uh, de decrease commerce uh, and flights of any kind with India and until this is in better control. It is not just the alarming rates of infection. It's the overrunning of the hospitals and the supplies that are needed to treat the patients that are very worrisome. And to just to draw from your uh, both of your comments, the objective of social distancing and lockdowns and uh, everything we were doing before the vaccine came on the market was to manage the resources for hospitalization and to make sure the doctors and the hospitals were not overrun. And so any perspective you have there in terms of what's happening in India and underscoring, obviously, the uh, the importance of what I'll refer to as some of the measures that were put in place earlier. It's very difficult to lock down in some parts of India because they're, they're very, very close quarters. Um, and the ability to get normal um, uh, food supplies, other you know, the supplies of daily living that you need to people is going to be very difficult in a lockdown situation. Um, and it's an open society. So it's not like China where the Chinese government just says you can't go anywhere and nobody goes anywhere. Uh, that's not, that's not going to be the case uh, in India. So it is going to be difficult, but that's what they're going to need to do. And that's what they are doing is beginning to lock, lock down uh, neighborhoods and using the uh, military to bring, to bring supplies in. Um, so I, they're, and they're also just the way that, that epidemic curves go, uh, eventually it's going to start coming down one way or another. Um, just hoping that sooner than later, earlier this week, it looked like the, the curve was starting to peak out, but, uh, the last couple of days have, have shown that it's still going up at about the same rate that it had been. So, uh, the, I don't have any, any real good news about India right now. Fred, I know you're in touch with the with members of the medical and scientific community in India. Yeah, I have. I have not talked to them since this major outbreak. But prior to this, they expressed concerns about the few ventilators that they had. Uh, so that they are uh, a relative per capita. Their medical equipment uh, is uh, really deficient. So and now it's been tested and Clearly, it's uh, the hospital system is overwhelmed. So I and even when they had little blips, their physicians were being overwhelmed. I can't even imagine what it's like right now. It's uh, the other thing I did read about the medical students. They are all having to pitch in and are working 24 seven along with the physicians uh, to try to stem the tide. But it is uh really a serious and severe condition right now for them, a great challenge. Okay, let's switch over to the United States. Uh, what are the numbers saying about potential for reaching herd immunity? And also there have been reports of um, certainly hospitalizations of young people who may not have been vaccinated and who were not obviously observing social distancing. And I'm just curious what you're seeing nationally right now um, and any areas of concern as well as the areas of optimism. David, let me, rather than just go right to the U.S. data, let me start with some international data that will lead us to something about the U.S. 
Israel. Um, this was data from earlier this week, uh, running right around 77 cases per day. That's not cases per 100,000 per day. That's 77 cases per day for the whole nation. That works out to about 0.96 cases per 100,000 per day, which, as we've discussed in the past, that's the level that is typically considered negligible. Um, they have 73%, 73.3% of the population uh, had has received at least their first dose. And uh, when you add together their total known cases with the, pop, the percent of the population that has received their first dose, they're over 75% of the population, probably just over 75%. So that's looking like we're getting down to negligible level. That's kind of feeling like herd immunity. Again, we're not going to know until we look back. But then let's go to the UK. The UK is seeing right now 2,400 cases per day, which works out to 3.6 cases per 100,000 per day. Their vaccinations um, are 52% of the population immunized. They've had about 7% of the population that has uh, had it a uh, had documented COVID infection. But something that that the UK has that really nobody else does is they've the NHS has had from the beginning of this has had a very uh, thorough program of characterizing the antibody positivity, the seropositivity of the nation. They're right now running at about 68% projected seropositivity. Now, again, that's survey-based, um, but that's that's about 68.3% seropositivity. They're down to 3.6 cases. That's not quite negligible, but it is down at a very low level. So I think when you put that data together, it's looking like somewhere around 70, 75% of the population being immune through either disease or vaccination is where we, we believe we're going to start seeing significant herd immunity effects. So now moving to the U.S. data. The U.S. right now is at uh, 16 cases per 100,000 per day. That's a 16% drop in the last week. Um, and we have had about 10% of the population that has had a known infection. Now, double or maybe even triple that for what was the what's the real level of infection. But let's just leave it at that 32.2, at the 10% of the population. As of, this is again, this is two days ago now, um, the first dose of vaccination, 143 million, which is 43% of the population. Um, so if we take that 43 and the 10, now you can't directly add because some of the people who have been had infections have been immunized, but we're probably right around 50% of the population that is immune in some way, either from the vaccine or infection. And then at the rate we're vaccinating, we're increasing that at about a half a percent per day. So you just do the simple math on that. And what that's saying is by mid-month in May, we're going to be at about 60% immunity. By the end of the month, we'll be in the mid to upper 60s. Uh, and I think if that's the point where based on what we're seeing from Israel and the UK, somewhere right in there, we're going to start seeing significant herd immunity effects. Now, the one caveat to that is the United States is not a monolith. We have rates running uh, from very high numbers to very low numbers. California is down at four cases per 100,000 per day, um, runs up as high as 45 cases per 100,000 per day in Michigan. So it's not going to be the same all over the country, but we're going to be start getting close to where we're going to see pockets of herd immunity and those pockets are going to grow and grow and grow unless, unless there's an externality that pops up that uh, we don't know about. But so far I'm, I'm pretty confident this is looking pretty good. I, I would agree with Bill. Um, 
I'm spending all my extra time, my volunteer time vaccinating people because I feel so strong. In fact, I spent from 7.30 this morning until 12.30 vaccinating people. I've got my technique down so I can do one person every 1.5 minutes. In this center, we've been vaccinating somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 per day. And we're hoping to achieve herd immunity in the Alachua County area. For instance, our elderly now, are those over 65, we're up to 83% vaccinated. So we've got that population nicely covered. And so I, I agree. I think there are going to be pockets of herd immunity by mid-May, end of May. And there'll be some areas, as we know, those areas that don't want to wear masks, don't want to continue to socially distance, the reproductive rate will stay relatively high. When the reproductive rate is relatively high, you need a higher percent vaccinated to extinguish the epidemic. So the places like Michigan are going to take a higher percent vaccinated to slow that epidemic down, unfortunately. Really, the recommendation is try to achieve herd immunity, get up to 70% in the areas that have a low pre-productive rate because you, you actually, the vaccine has a bigger impact there than it does in areas with high reproductive rate. So California, probably if they can get to 70%, that epidemic will go away. But that brings up what the big problem is right now, and that's it, we're starting to run out of people who are willing to get vaccinated. Uh, if we look at the vaccination rate over the past uh, two weeks, it's actually gone down. We were running pretty close to 4 million vaccinations a day. Uh, it was now I looked this morning, um, over the last week, the average is just over 2.5 million vaccinations per day. Part of that is pulling the Johnson & Johnson out of the mix. It's now just coming back into it. But part of that, part of that is the fear that the, what happened with the Johnson and Johnson has engendered in people who were kind of on the fence. And then the last part of it is just the people who just say no. So we're now shifting to how do we ration vaccine to how do we market vaccine? Well, Bill, you're exactly right. And and uh, I was at a conference last night uh, with a the head of the Baptist Ministry of Mississippi, and they have been working very hard in their churches among their pastors to convince uh, particularly African-Americans who did not trust the health system to become vaccinated. And the good news is when, and what they did is they had all of their uh, ministers actually were videoed being vaccinated and those were spread on Facebook. As a consequence of their campaign, now African-Americans in Mississippi have a, as high a vaccination rate as anyone else. And so you can overcome this distrust uh, when trusted individuals such as pastors and your local physician, um, if they get vaccinated and they encourage you to become vaccinated, a lot of people, their hesitancy will go away. Another group that's a real problem is the rural areas. And what we're talking about now is there are vans that are going to be going out to these rural areas to vaccinate those that really can't come into the cities and maybe a little bit hesitant. So it'll require some good PR work and then people actually going out to those local communities to reach them. Hey, Fred, I want to jump in because I, I want the audience to fully appreciate uh, the point that you just made and that you and Bill have been making all along. It is not just the message that's being delivered. Uh, what is very important here 
is the messenger and the authenticity of the messenger. And also making it easy for people. New York has shifted from an appointment-based system to no appointment needed, where people can just show up, come in, and indeed there are various mobile platforms that are going through neighborhoods to make it easier for people to uh, uh, to take the vaccine. Uh, and notwithstanding, let me, if I can just probe a little bit about how young people uh, look at the health risk, uh, because I did see the reports this week of increased hospitalizations of, um, you know, people in the 20 and 30 year uh, demographics. And just curious, you know, what you're seeing and what you're hearing about that. Well, I can speak to the young people because a lot of uh, when Florida opened up, I think it was April 6th or 9th, uh, vaccination for everyone 16 and above if, for Pfizer. Um, we That's when we started this big campaign. And the students in general are very have been very enthusiastic about the vaccine. And they would like to get back to a normal social life. They hate wearing masks. They hate social distancing. That just isn't college. And that isn't high school. So I think the majority of young people, um, if offered the opportunity, will become vaccinated so they can return to a more uh, socially engaged life, which they really require at this age. I think it's very, very important. So I'm optimistic that the majority of the young people will become will will agree to be vaccinated. Well, that's also bringing up one of the big debates that I think our government and governments at various levels are having right now. On one hand, um, they're thinking the public health aspects as um, it was, as we've talked about at length on this, that for now, maintaining masks and social distancing are still is still important. But they want the governments want to be able to hold out that possibility that we're going to be able to decrease masking, decrease social distancing, allow especially younger people to go back and do what they've been doing uh, and using that as an incentive to get people to to uh, get vaccinated. Because I think I've talked to a lot of young people who have who have said, well, if I still have to wear a mask and still have to social distance and I'm not going to get real sick, even if I get it, why do I care? I mean that's very much what the what the uh, the mentality is on this. So we need to give people an incentive that yeah, if you if you get vaccinated, there is in the near future, maybe not immediately, but there is in the near future, there is going to be the ability to get back to what you're doing. One of the other things that I found kind of uh, interesting, and uh, we don't compare notes ahead of time, so Fred may have comment on this, but. Something that I've been telling people, and I hope I am, I'm not misinterpreting this, compare COVID to flu. In any given flu season, the CDC published rate for unvaccinated people is about 2.3% is going to get flu. If you get vaccinated, you decrease that rate to 0.9%. You know, not quite a two-thirds reduction in your risk. Um, you also reduce your risk of serious illness or dying, but not as much percentage-wise as the decreasing the risk of serious illness or dying with COVID is. But COVID, let's look at the COVID risks. What we've seen, we don't have long experience with this, but over the last year, we have seen that the general risk of getting COVID in the general population is at least 10%, if not 20%. I mean, we have 32 million out of 330 million who have gotten COVID documented and a lot more that haven't. But if you get vaccinated, 
The CDC released data last week that said that the risk of getting COVID if vaccinated is 0.008%. That's a pretty significant drop. Uh, Fred, am I looking at that wrong in any way? I think that's right. I didn't see that data, but uh, this vaccine is is truly amazing, particularly the Moderna and the Pfizer, and that they have a 92 to 94% efficacy. And just to add to what Bill said, is that there was a, the CDC just released two studies on nursing homes. And what happened in the nursing homes is everyone in the nursing home, the, the, the residents, majority were vaccinated. Unfortunately, the employees that support them, only 40% were vaccinated. So guess what? They brought the infection, the workers brought the infection into the nursing homes. In the past, that would mean a 30, 25 to 30 percent death rate. Well, uh, those that are vaccinated, very few had any symptoms. A few, a very slow percent had serious disease and they had one death and about three hospitalizations. So they calculated overall the efficacy of the vaccine in people over 65 was uh, greater than 90 percent. So this is a very remarkable vaccine that virtually uh, in a way that I don't think any other vaccine except for maybe smallpox and polio vaccines that is uh, effectively prevents this disease. But of course, the other big news on vaccines this week was the release of the pause on the J&J vaccine. I was a little bit surprised at the the statement that came out from a, it was a joint statement of CDC and FDA, where they basically they included into the vaccine uh, information paper, they ha- they just put in a paragraph that said there is an increased risk of blood clotting in women aged 19 to 49. And but it was not a bolded statement. It was not they just they say sometimes a black box statement. Um, it was just they just inserted that in. As I read through the data, I think it's pretty clear that that is the only significant population that has that risk. So I've been asked, and as we've talked on these these in the past, what vaccine should I get? And my statement up until now has always been, you should get whatever vaccine someone is willing to put in your arm. I don't care which one. They're, they're all good. But after this, I feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that to women in age 19 to 49. And so what, 18 to 49. And so what I've been saying over the last week, and again, please disagree with me if you, if you think this is wrong. I'm saying, if you don't have a choice, the odds are, based on the very significant assessment that was done by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that J&J vaccine is still better than not getting the vaccine. You have a lower risk of serious outcomes if you get the vaccine than if you do get it. But if you do have a choice, use one of the vaccines that, does, that is not puts you at risk if you happen to be in that at-risk age group of women who are 18 to 49. Bill, I agree with you. Uh, I actually studied superior sagittal sinus thrombosis and cavernous sinus thrombosis and lateral sinus thrombosis in association with various infections. And uh, so I am very aware of this. When you get the major venous channels of the brain uh, to clot off, the consequences from a neurological standpoint are absolutely devastating and really not consistent with a meaningful life if that were to happen. 
and this is a young, vibrant population. So I would encourage them whenever possible to get one of the mRNA vaccines, which have not been associated with this anti-platelet factor 4 antibody and the, the activation of platelets and this overwhelming clotting of the veins in the brain. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's exceedingly rare, but if you're that one person, it's not rare to you. Think of the loss of that, that person unnecessarily when they could have gotten the mRNA vaccine. We had talked about this a little bit last week, but let me raise this for uh, one minute, which is if people are taking the J&J vaccine or the AstraZeneca vaccine, any symptoms they should be mindful of after receiving the vaccine that might alert them to the need to confer with their doctor? Well, it usually occurs about 7 to 14 days after the vaccination, and other side effects usually occur within the first 72 hours. So uh, a late-onset headache, I think, would be a concern in that age group, and they should seek medical attention. And the type of headache, usually, I don't, I haven't read about the cases associated with the vaccine, but in uh, other forms of venous thrombosis of the central nervous system, the headache is very severe. It's not relieved by standard over-the-counter medications. So I think if you get a headache that's severe, you need to go to the emergency room immediately. Now, one of the issues, and I'm hoping a lot of physicians will learn this, is that uh, if you normally, when we have someone with thrombosis, we give them the blood thinner heparin. It turns out that heparin might make this disease worse. And therefore, the recommendation is give intravenous immunoglobulin, IVIG, is the treatment of choice, and the platelets immediately rise and the thrombosis shuts off when you do that. Uh, Low-dose heparin can make it worse. It looks like high-dose heparin may be okay, but at this point, they're not recommending heparin at all for this disease. It's a final point. Um, As I mentioned before this call, there may be some misunderstanding in large part due to misinformation uh, over the internet, uh, whether if you are fasting for religious or other reasons, whether that is a, um, a bar to taking the vaccine. And any thoughts or quick bits of advice that you might have uh, for people who are fasting, and obviously this is the period of Ramadan, um, but whether that poses an increased health risk, or whether you're seeing anything out there in the medical literature that would indicate that people who are fasting should avoid taking the vaccine. David, I've done a little bit of research on this. And yes, I mean, the vaccine can make people ill. And if someone is doing the the typical dawn to dusk fasting of Ramadan, if they're if they get to feel ill, they may feel even more ill when they get to the end of their fasting period. Um, but there is nothing specific about the vaccine that uh, is going to make make things worse other than if you just you feel bad anyway because you're fasting, you may feel a little bit worse. But the alternative uh, is continuing your risk of getting COVID, and you would feel a lot worse if you got COVID. Right. And obviously, if after the fast is broken on a daily basis – uh, particularly, I'm thinking of New York, where there are facilities now that are open 24-7. Uh, you might say that that would be advisable after 
fast is broken, that might be a good time to be vaccinated. Well, I mean, this certainly becomes the, the religious observation part of it, but I don't see from a medical standpoint really where it's going to matter what time of day you get the get the vaccine because the, the symptoms onset is typically you know, the next day or over the next 48 hours, not shortly after getting the vaccine. So unless there was a, a religious reason why you shouldn't get vaccinated during the day, which I'm not familiar with at all, I don't think it really matters what time of day you get the vaccine. Thank you for clearing that up, Bill. Fred and Bill, once again, thanks for the insights. Look forward to the continued conversation, and uh, hopefully everybody will stay safe and well over this coming week, and the numbers will continue to come down. Thank you, David. Have a good week, David. Thank you both. Take care. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.